John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 218.1C1110, certificate number 16179. Cholitas! Maybe this is kind of an ambush question. That's a good way to start a podcast, by the way. <laughs> well, we should, have, we should have a podcast called Ambush Question. Ambush Question. <laughs> When did you stop beating your children? Well, how up to speed would you say you are on Bolivian politics? On a scale of uno to diez. Boy, I was going to, you know, normally in answer to a question like that, I'm always going to have some... I'm a solid ocho, Ken. Yeah, I'm going to have like some some background to like leap in and have opinions about Bolivian politics. Well, that's what but, I was wondering. But I'm, I'm standing here uh, covered in shame... Really unable to, I, I mean, I, I, aside from the kind of boys in Brazil era of Bolivian <laughs> politics. Right, all the landlocked <laughs> parts of South America, which you just assume are run by Nazi mad scientists. That's right. Uh, other than that, I mean, I had, a, uh, I had a girlfriend that moved to Ecuador at some point a few years ago in the middle of our relationship. Wow, this is the most desperate I've ever seen you for content. <laughs> she was like... Uh, I once, <laughs> I knew somebody who was three countries away once. I'm moving to Ecuador. And I was like, oh, near Bolivia. And she said, no. And so, yeah. Correct. I, That's I, correct. I, <laughs> Peru is in the way. I guess... Um, I guess nothing. I don't know anything about Bolivian well, butch, politics. Butch and Sundance, I guess. Sure, sure. I mean, I know I can say things about Bolivia fifty years ago you or a hundred years. ago. You just ago. assume that Butch and Sundance are no longer involved in the the regime. There. I mean, I'm sure they I'm sure they reverberate through uh, uh, <laughs> Bolivian politics in the same way that the teapot dome scandal uh, still is active in American politics. They shoot two hot blonde guys with sideburns every mm-hmm. Sunday out there just to just to remember the good old days. It's like when you go to um, when you go to the Warner Ranch or, yeah. or whatever, what, some Hollywood Western town. Uh, yeah, well, at Knott's Bray Farm, right? They, yeah, exactly. They're still shooting cowboys off of trains But in there, Bolivia, right? they really blow them up. Uh, and I've always wanted to be one of those sideburned blonde guys. You could almost grow sideburns. You're, you're, you're closing in on 50 years old. I'm never going to have those uh, 70s good looks, though. They were like, we need somebody a little more... They were attractive. so good looking. You look at them even now and go, ah, there's just nobody that good looking. It's disappointing because you look at the real pictures of Butch and Sundance yeah, and they just look looking. like they, you know, they own a dry goods store. Yeah. Mushy faced people. <laughs> what? Oh, if they were actually attractive, they wouldn't have been 
uh, killed. <laughs> we don't kill attractive people. <laughs> I was going to say they wouldn't have been forced to be bandits. Oh, the, I see. The, the world will always find a place for the attractive person behind a desk or in a nice office somewhere in Chicago. Yeah, but yeah, there there are beautiful psychopaths, right? I mean, yeah, they all Bun- get they Bundy all get office was, jobs. Bundy was pretty handsome and also had an office, and job. he could have run a bank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he, he could be governor of Washington. That's just now. a case of letting your hobbies take over your life. <laughs> You have traveled extensively in uh, in Latin America. I have have you been? I have absolutely not. Well, no. You didn't. You go down and do some sort of mission in, in Costa Rica. That uh, you're thinking of uh, James Bond, Quantum of Solace. Oh right. Oh no, it was the Taylor of Panama, <laughs> which was a terrible <laughs> yeah, movie. I was not the Taylor of Panama. Well, uh, so no, you were in Spain. Yes. The the it's the, kind of the, the northern OG. the northern part of Latin America. <laughs> uh, you have not been to South America. I've been to Argentina briefly. On the way south, I was going to oh, Antarctica. To Antarctica. Yeah. I've been to Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. So you've been around, but not to Bolivia. Never to the north northwest uh, side. Uh, the thing about Bolivian politics is that it's been an extremely weird situation for the last couple of years. That's kind of flown under the radar, I guess, unless you listen to a lot of Chapo Trap House or wherever you get your I do not wherever you get your far left <laughs> politics about Turkey and uh, right and Venezuela uh, Honduras yeah, yeah exactly how Venezuela um, is actually the 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 future yes Venezuelan government well Bolivia kind of was the future oh Bolivia kind of seemed to be Venezuela done right oh for, wow for, which is what you want sure if you were starting a country <laughs> wouldn't you put that on the flag Venezuela Venezuela pero mejor hecho. <laughs> Uh, because Bolivia had its own Chavez type as part uh-huh. as part of that pink tide. We should explain to a far future audience, right, who has not listened to the show before, that uh, through an accident. <laughs> Hello, of- <laughs> we call you Futurelings. I'm Ken. We don't know what order they're going to be. Like we just assume they've heard 30 shows about CIA involvement in in Latin America, but maybe this is their first show. Sure, Cholitas became the uh, the entry point for Omnibus. Maybe Cholitas is their word for um, welcome, and they were like, "Oh, this is like the FAQ," and they've been very confused so far. Futurelings could live in a global Bolivia. What would that even mean? Well, I mean, like the Bolivian form <laughs> takes over Earth. And like like we, the, the outline of a map of Bolivia, but it's just the size of a continent? Well, no, it's like a, a, in the same way that the 20th century was the American century. Right. Maybe the 24th century is the Bolivian century. That would explain a lot about Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, there it is. If the, if the 24th century is the Bolivian century. There are, you know, other, we, we've contacted other civilizations, we've colonized Mars, and now Earth becomes sort of just like Earth peren feet Bolivia. <laughs> The, uh, so we, you know, we've talked about a century, speaking of the American century, a century of American, uh, meddling down South, mm, here, uh, here. mostly just through an accident. <laughs> Say, <laughs> tell me more. Are there pineapples involved? Uh, the, it's mostly an ad, an a, uh, accident of longitude, right? That we happen to be as far West as this other continent. And ever since the days of John Quincy Adams, we just decided in our wigs and our moral superiority, that that means we should run the show. It's down there. And Men. well, it doesn't have to be down. Oh, well, sure. I it's, mean, if you have one of those globes that, if yeah. you believe that the earth rotates sideways, I have hemisphere privilege. <laughs> I'm from the hemisphere that people put on top on the map because right. that's where most of the land 
and the guns and the steel are and, and maybe fewer of the germs? Uh, no, I bet more germs too. You think we get the germs? I think we have more I can't germs. remember. Are the germs good because they make you a hardy? Or are the germs bad because they make you, um, well, die of germs? Yeah, the germs make beer. So oh, that's what you need. Mm-hmm. You need yeast. Mm. It should be called guns, yeast, and steel. Yeah. I, I would have read that book more thoroughly. It's th- That's more like, um, that's a business book about the founding of Cinnabon. Yeast. Guns and steel. Got to lead with lead with the yeast. <laughs> lead with yeast. Yeet the yeast. Um, yes. Well, we've had we our manifest destiny went east to west, but then once you get to the west, what do you, where do you go? I mean, we went north, but there were a bunch of British there. But pretty early, right? Yeah. The, the Monroe presidency were already being like, you know, we're kind of in the same vertical stripe of the map as like you know Haiti, but also Argentina. Yeah. And it kind of feels like we should run that, right? And and for some reason, nobody said no. Well, I think it was, uh, geopolitics of the time, it was either we do or France, Spain, or England does. It wasn't like either we do or they have self-determination and sure. de- and develop their own flourishing well, society. Haiti, Haiti maybe. Uh, well, right. But uh, but yeah, we were we were engaged in a in this sort of uh, global power struggle. Whose whose three masted frigate can can cannonade the the natives more effectively. But think how weird it is that as a result, today we feel like we have some natural geographic right to just meddle in Bolivian politics, even though it's a landlocked country 4,000 miles away from Washington, D.C. Like, it's Bolivia is as far away from D.C. as, like, Berlin is. And we're meddling in their politics pretty effectively, too, <laughs> at least until very recently. <laughs> we are, but that's not because we're like, well, of course we should look at a map. You know, it just seems self-evident that, you know, because it's called the Americas. But, you know, there's a little isthmus in the middle. Nobody's nobody's going to come up. Well, explain. I think probably there are a lot of futurelings going, now, wait a minute, America meddles in Bolivian politics? I don't think that that is as self-evident as uh, to, to everyone. Here's the story. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, just today, and this is not a Bolivian-specific story, but just this morning, I got up and read that the NSA had just declassified documents about the 1976 coup in Argentina that yes. overthrew Isabel Perón. Did you see this? Uh, no, I didn't, because I'm not on the internet anymore. That's a smart move. <laughs> yeah, it's been good now, so far. Because now I'm really aggravated about the Isabel Perón regime, right? and you couldn't care less. Not really. You're relaxed about it? Uh, oh, yeah. Isabel Perón, sure, sure, man. Love the musical. Whatever, bro. Uh, so the NSA declassified this. Why? Was oh, there a Freedom of it, it Information was Act? A, it was either a Freedom of Information Act request or it's just statute of limitations. And it turns out that, yeah, the conspiracy theory in the 70s that the U.S. had known about and helped, and helped uh, bring about the regime change was actually true. The U.S. had known for months and spent, spent a month going back and forth on how they could overthrow the democratically elected populist leader of Argentina. You know, as as someone who who spends a, some amount of time trying to debunk wild conspiracy theories, it's it's frustrating. Well, I do feel that any theory that presupposes that the U.S. intelligence community was meddling in South American politics isn't really a conspiracy theory. It's a it's just a it's it's, it's a dog fights man. Yeah, that's right. The it's, conspiracy theory would be if like you know what this one we this one we're yeah. you know what we're as uh, we're as surprised <laughs> as you guys. This really happened. Can you believe it? Yeah, I feel like that's all. It's just a matter of shaking out all of the of the coins out of the couch to figure out how how deeply we were up to our knees and I mean that kind of basically any coup d'état that happened between nineteen forty seven. 
and the present. And pretty much. And you could just shrug and say, "Hey, it's in the western hemisphere." Like Right. It's, it's not like we were it's not like we were fooling around in Europe or Asia, which we were know, also doing. Which we were also doing and are as far away from the heartland of America as lots of South America. Um in 2005, a man named Evo Morales was elected president of oh, Bolivia. Sure, I know Evo M- Morales. Okay, it's all coming you, back to you, me you now. You guys were at a party once. Yeah, yeah, we were. You know, Elon Musk in, uh, introduced us. You were like, "Hey, Evo, my girlfriend just moved to Ecuador," and he's like, "John, I am from Bolivia. We have we have gone over this." <laughs> Actually, Idris Elba was there, and he explained it to me. Uh, everyone at this party has such an interesting name. It was a killer party. Evo, Elon, Idris, Mel Brooks was there. Did you have to make up a, a cooler name? No, I'm Ian Roderick. Everybody knows me. Uh, he, uh, as I was saying, was part of this kind of pink tide of left-leaning, uh, hardline against global capitalism, populist guys in the right. Chavez mold. There was also um, Lula da Silva in Brazil, mm-hmm. who is kind of being... Uh, he had a sort of recons- jolly demeanor. I, I, I just naturally liked him. It seemed like somebody that would be on Will Wheaton's tabletop. More likable than the current guy. Yeah, you yeah, know, you, sure. you, you kind of miss him once he's gone. Yeah, that's right. I always like a, like a leftist pop- populist more than like a hard right. Uh, like, Blowhard? Yeah, a vax denier. Berlusconi type. Um, in, uh, and Berlusconi's kind of cuddly in a way. Oh, really? Well, I don't know. He's, would you cuddle with, which world leaders would you cuddle with? Angela Merkel, for sure. You think she's cuddly or she's the first woman you could think of? Uh, no, I just feel like I really I admire her as a leader and, you know, and I like heart, I like emotionally unavailable women. I feel like, you know, he's not available now, but I feel like Mao might be cuddly. Oh, yeah, but Mao, I don't like a leader that's in a bubble. He's already in pajamas. I don't want a bubble at, leader. At I any w- time of day. I want somebody that's out, you know, in I'm, the streets. I'm presupposing that you and I are in the, we're in the bubble. You know, we've gotten in with Angela or, or Mao or oh, whoever. And so, but you're, you'd be troubled by the fact that he's a, he's an autocrat and, and mass murderer. Yeah, well, I mean, who isn't? Uh, but like <laughs> Erdogan, I don't think is very cuddly. But Netanyahu seems a little... Yeah, Netanyahu actually seems... Uh, kind of cuddly. cuddly. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Morales was president for the next 14 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and which, this started when? He was elected in 2005. Okay. That made him the longest serving president in Bolivian history because Bolivia, like many Latin American nations, has had a turbulent series of, of different leaders and governments and... Uh, Regime styles. So he was president until very recently. President until 2019, in fact. Uh, and given that 2020 didn't exist, that's right. only last year. He's practically still president. Well, he is in an odd way. He was very popular for much of that time. He won all these elections in landslides. He followed the Chavez model by nationalizing his big industry, which in the case of Bolivia is natural gas. You know, they don't have the giant petro reserves of Venezuela, but they've got. They've got some natural gas that he nationalized and, uh, Bolivian marching powder. Coca is legal in Bolivia. That actually predates his regime. So that led to some tension with, uh, Mm. the Northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Um, we like to go in and napalm that stuff Mm -hmm. and they're also packaging it and selling it. (laughs) Right. And it's all, it's all about who profits or which missiles you get in exchange he, uh, Morales actually came from a coca farming background. Oh. He was a leg- an oddity in a culture that had been ruled by white and mestizo elites 
for decades. He was uh, an indigenous person uh, of the Aymara people, of which more in a moment. I was going to say that he, it sounds like he's the Jimmy Carter of, uh, of Bolivia. Yes, like, if Jimmy Carter were like a Cherokee. Right. Yeah, um, which I believe he is not. As far as I know. Um, and unlike Chavez, he, uh, he actually was successful in using these reforms to prop up the, econom- the economy of his people. So poverty decreased like 42%, extreme pro- poverty decreased 60%. Uh, lots of social change as well. And again, kind of a hidebound, old-fashioned society that didn't have room for its women or its indigenous people. Um, suddenly, uh, you know, Morales is more forward-thinking and progressive on these fronts as well. So he's following the early 60s Castro model. Which yes. was what, which was what uh, Chavez also, at least initially, was doing. Yes, and you know it worked for Chavez until the economy cratered. You know, and uh, it's you know it's open to interpretation whether Morales just never got to that point or whether his government managed the the boom and bust better. Um, but what, it, it, they weren't. It's petrodollars, but it's not petrodollars on the same scale. Right, and because it's not on the same scale, he has a few advantages. You know, one, you avoid that huge spike, but also you he he never. Uh, antagonized the the north in the same way that Chavez kind of enjoyed right. tweaking America and Europe. And honestly, part of it is because he was doing it on a smaller scale without access to an important source of an important American resource. You know, he could be, he was a little more left alone. Right. Uh, he didn't seem to represent so much as a threat. What's undeniable is that like essentially anybody in his mold, whether on the left or on the right, he got to enjoy being president of Bolivia. Oh, I like this story so far. Wouldn't that be nice to enjoy being the president of a small landlocked country? He's got, uh, now he's got a high rise. He's got a jacuzzi. He sounds like the plot of a Marx Brothers movie. He's, he, he really, yeah, he's got a big Art Deco apartment <laughs> with um, like uh, Marino Sullivan running around. It's, uh, it's so much nicer than the dirt poor coca farm he came from. Right. But... These guys like power. Everybody likes power. Sure. We should explain this to the future. Sure. They don't have this moral weakness, but... I like power. In our era... Uh, you like power. It's just hard to... It's hard to go back once you have it. A little bit of power, but gets a little bit more power. And in these places... More money, more problems. And as we've seen, even in our country, a 200-year history of peaceful transitions of power and so forth doesn't always hold. You know? Right. Even the strongest conventions can be broken by this desire people have to grasp onto the power they have at all costs. Well, and that other people seem to have to throw behind someone who exhibits a kind of muscularity. Uh, that's the thing that confuses me, that in, a, that in a country that is so predicated on liberty, like, like ours ostensibly is, that, that such a large proportion of the people would like give it up. Morales has had less of a kind of a strong man, Chavez, I'm going to stick it to the gringo vibe. He's so cuddly. So, some of that, but but also much more of a, you know, a kind of a Juan Perón, I'm one of you. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a kind of a vibe. And Bolivia has term limits. Oh, nice. But um Morales was not going to let that trouble him. He had he had pushed those for his third term and then just kind of Utterly disregarded them for his fourth for his fourth term. Oh dear, that's a bad sign. Neither of these were supposed to exist. These terms. Uh, he uh, tried to get a referendum on the ballot, allowing him to run again. It failed narrowly, even though he's massively popular because 
the people also like their democratic traditions. Is he the first like indigenous president of in South America? Yes, uh, and in fact, he's often called the first indigenous president. head of state of of Latin America. That's not quite true because of Benito Juarez's Zapotec background right. in the nineteenth century. So there's there's a Mexican tradition for this kind of. Um, outspoken beloved leader of of the heartland of you know of the of the native people um, but except for that Evo Morales is pretty much it there's like a hundred year gap and then there's Evo uh, more than a hundred years actually and uh, so when his referendum is voted down he just has his hand-picked Supreme Court say actually we think that it would limit President Morales's civil rights to term limit him oh so as a matter okay. of as a matter of human rights it's oh, like oh dear that's a that's a brave legal tack to take who who, who wh- who was it that advanced that theory? This is his this is his argument to his own handpicked high court. The Supreme Court of Bolivia says, "Yes, we will honor the president's human rights mm. as a human, you know, we don't want Amnesty International to come in and get mad because he, this guy couldn't run for president four times." And um I mean, this is why you have the checks and balances of uh, of a of a court, a legislature and a president all ostensibly like different spheres but you can see the pattern for this in the u.s even when our last president was openly talking about hey i just need to make sure i get enough people on this court to maintain my grasp on power and he did this wasn't even subtext he would just say this on on fox and friends yeah right so Uh, close so close and in bolivia it actually happened The, the supreme court did the trump play and said yeah buddy you can run again and you know despite the fact that um Bolivia is kind of souring on his now obvious authoritarian tendencies. The economy is still pretty good and certainly a lot better than it was in 2005 when he took over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is a generation that can still remember a lot of times that were not great and were not forward thinking. And they see the improvements. And so he's a front runner in this 2019 election. Now, uh, he's running against, uh, you know, the center right party. And he needs to win by 10% to avoid a runoff, to win the presidency again outright. And it's his government's already announced that there's going to be, uh, you know, an informal tally on the day of the election, and then the counting will stop and we'll come back uh, the next day. You know, that's yeah. uh, 24 hours later. This has already kind of been announced as the timeline. Is the counting also happening as a, is the counting also a government function? I mean, is this a, a situation where he's calling the governor of, of uh, Georgia, the Secretary of State L- of Georgia, to be like, hey, uh, can you uh, find a few more votes, Jorge? Um, the I, I can't find a lot of doubts about the integrity of the Bolivian electoral system mm-hmm. before the election. Mm-hmm. But what happens on election day is when the informal tally closes that day, Morales is up seven point nine points, so not enough to avoid a runoff. And then twenty four hours later, when the polls come back. He's at ten point two. Oh, and he wins by ten point five. So, and that was just overnight. It wasn't. It was like, whoa! How did this? How did? Where did these votes come from? Yeah, it was. It, it was more. More counting had happened, but suddenly his his uh, margin has become suspiciously convenient. I see. And the Organization of American States, who has observers on the ground, um, starts saying, "Yeah, this is rigged." Is the Organization of American States a uh, NSA-funded proxy? <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. But, yeah, let's say that there is one American state that has a lot of influence over the OAS, and mm-hmm. that is the U.S. Uh, 
so despite the fact that, you know, what's not questioned here is that he had a big lead in the election, but within 24 hours, this crazy thing happens where the OAS says this election is not valid and the army is able, you know, the army, you know, traditionally not a super leftist institution and not a big fan of all of um, Morales' reforms and certainly a little worried about his increasingly illegitimate grasp on power, steps in and says, we're going to shepherd the transition of power. And suddenly Morales is in, is on a flight to Mexico and the army is in power and they've installed an interim president from the center-right party. And the army did that kind of, uh, um, justifying its actions based on the organization of American states, uh, yes. call o- outside observers have called the election into question. We agree and we need to safeguard the integrity of the Bolivian democracy, and here's what we're going to do. We're wow. going to get get the president out of here. I always wonder in a situation like that, if you're going to pack the Supreme Court of your country, why you wouldn't also have only uh, loyalist officers in the army. I guess you have to go all the way down to like the the mid-level officers, because it's always some lieutenant colonel that stages the coup, right? Yeah, that's right. You, you, the, the top guys were loyal to you. Right. But unfortunately— there was a guy who could call in tanks who maybe the problem is the ambitious people don't end up on the Supreme court. The ambitious people are all right, colonels right, right, right. who are like, you know what? I see an opening here. Uh, so anyway, all of a sudden, so suddenly, um, suddenly the Morales's political opponents, a much more U S friendly party, you know, an interim president named Janine Añez is in, is the president of Bolivia and she's saying things like, uh, you know, we need to keep Morales's party, the, his movement towards socialism party out. We've got, or otherwise it'll return the savages to power. Ooh, you know, oh she's dear. using the kind of language that you would think you wouldn't use against the, indi- the popular indigenous party, but you know, Bolivia is, is like at least half indigenous. Now, how many female heads of state have there been in South American history? Well, that's a good point. Argentina's had a couple. Yeah. Obviously, we've said Isabel Perón in Argentina. Oh, that's Argentina again. Okay, yeah. And, um, oh, and then there was Argentina. <laughs> Who am I missing? Oh, uh, Chile, right? Um, Michelle Bachelet? Bachelet? Am I making that up? There have been a few. Yeah. But the point is, Añez is not much of a president. She's just somebody the army dropped in. And she kind of lo- she's kind of like, she looks like the exact kinds of, uh, of uh, white elites that that Morales's movement replaced. She's kind of, she looks like a blonde bank teller. Right. Or flight attendant. And, uh, no offense to bank tellers or flight attendants. No, you look like the president of Bolivia. You should be encouraged (laughs) by this. Now what comes out in kind of much sooner than the NSA admitted to, um, overthrowing Isabel Perón within a year, the LA times prints a story saying that it was actually the U S ambassador to the OAS that pushed them to, you know, the Trump administration's ambassador that pushed him to make this finding to find Morales's lead suspicious. And then the Washington Post did a, you know, or some researchers published in the Washington Post, some academics analyzing electoral numbers found that, you know, they, they can't say what happened at the, at the ballot box here at the polling places, but just on the basis of these numbers alone, mathematically, there was nothing wrong oh. with the election. This is one of these cases where it looked worse than it was. Yeah. Because returns don't come in uniformly. You know, if you, if you've watched CNN election night, you know that somebody seems to have the lead in Florida, but that's because most of the uncounted vote is in Miami-Dade County or, right. or whatever. You then know, somebody the, drives up and opens a, a mailbag, pours it on the table and the 
and the election changes. And it's not always illegitimate. You know, this is right. the, the kind of the big lie that gets pushed now is that, well, I was in the lead until 3 a.m. What? How could it have happened? Well, here's what happened. Like, you had the lead in rural areas that count faster. Somebody else had the lead in urban areas that don't. Now, not to argue in on behalf of the um, the side of this story that you're setting up to be the the meddling NSA. Wait, wait, wait! You're going to argue in favor of the American puppet government that briefly ran Bolivia? <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to both sides this question. But we started off by by laying out that Evo Morales had defied the actual constitution of oh, his yeah. own country to oh, put yeah. himself it back uh, back in contention. So you could make an argument that the election was invalid at its source. At the at the source of the water, sure, and I'm sh- and I'm sure that's the you know the OAS never said hey it's okay for us to install the army in power here because Mor- Morales never should have been running anyway. Read their own constitution. For, yeah, from a public relations standpoint, this is probably why I didn't uh, I didn't read as many articles about this as I probably should have. Well, also because it's Bolivia, yeah. you know, it's just kind of the myopia of the northern hemisphere press. Right. Oh, it's you know it's just one of those small countries we can't keep tell apart anyway. Um, and so, you know, the tide of, but the, you know, the tide of the facts turned quite abruptly in the year following Morales's abrupt exile, where he went from beloved president to, you know, sitting in a house in Argentina just pretty much overnight through some phone calls. And then how long, um, the fo- how, how long did the initial fake government of Bolivia, the, the, the junta stay in power. Elections got pushed back in 2020 a few times due to COVID. And when oh, they, there, so new elections were called a, within a year yeah, of this. Yeah. You know, even, uh, you know, the, the installed interim president said, you know, we'll, we'll take care of this, but you know, COVID was used as a, either a reason or a pretext, depending on how you see it to right. delay those elections several times. And when they were finally held in 2020, it was a surprise landslide for Morales's movement towards socialism party. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, a guy named Arce, who was kind of his, um, you know, his Nicolas Maduro, his kind of chosen successor, successor second in command type. And was, uh, was Morales then, did he return from yes. exile? Morales returned to, uh, to great, Cheers. And a lot of this is because as I've kind of, we haven't, I haven't really foregrounded it yet, but really his appeal to the people is that he is a brown indigenous guy who looks like a indigenous Andean guy right? in a country where that's what pretty much all the rural people look like. And yet they've been run by city, white city folk right. for a hundred years. And Which it was a common story throughout. South America and Latin America. Yes. And it really hasn't changed anywhere except Bolivia. So this was kind of exciting to actually see it happen and to see it work. And obviously it came with a lot of the downsides that any successful uh, Latin American presidency sometimes has. But it also, you know, at some point you have to realize that any government nowadays of any complexity is redistributing wealth somehow. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of to whom, right? Right. And in his case, the money actually did flow to the the poorest people of Bolivia, and extreme poverty uh, was vastly diminished by nationalizing the, the natural gas industry. So those people literally saw their lives get better. They saw somebody look like them in office, and it started to change the country in a big way um, because a ton of Bolivia is, uh, you know, 1.6 million Bolivians are Aymara. Oh. That, that's the dominant What's the population of Bolivia group. overall? 
Bolivia has about 11 million people, of which about a third, 3.5 million, are indigenous. Wow. Um, And Amara being the largest group. Amara is the largest group. You hear more about the Quechua, I think, just because they're the, you know, they were the Incan descendants. That's the big Peruvian um, indigenous group. But they are smaller than the Aymara people in Bolivia. The Aymara are the people of the the Altiplano, that high plateau and that side of the Andes, um, centered around the basin of Lake Titicaca, Uh which is fun to say. Uh, the the big lake on the I've border heard of, of uh, heard of it the highest navigable lake in the world the one on the border of Peru and Bolivia uh, the people who live there are a related group called the Uro who uh, you may have seen in National Geographic or whatever because they're the ones that live on the floating villages on Lake Titicaca oh, are you familiar right. yes of course they build their they build whole towns out of um, what are they called like Totara reeds some some local reed that oh. if you do it right with the you know, the centuries-old wisdom and craftsmanship of the Uro people, you can get a house that'll last for 30 years just sitting on a lake. Is that to protect themselves from panthers, or is it because <laughs> the ground is too steep and muddy on the sides of the lake, or why would you choose to build on a lake? It's all about panthers. They'd it's, ra- it's they'd, panthers, right? It's panthers all the way down. Well, They're the like, thing. you know what, we're going to get more anacondas here, but you get fewer panthers. Fewer so. panthers. And I would rather fight an anaconda than a panther. I assume it's because they are fishing communities. Right. And that just, you know. If you're closer to the fish. You're closer to the fish. You're, you're right on top of them. Yeah. You're like, uh, you're looking down like a Disneyland submarine. Sure. Uh, the, so, you know, that's a, that's a popular spot on the tourist trail. These, yeah, everybody these, likes to see a floating, floating town. towns. That's um, why people come to Seattle. The, <laughs> the Uro speak the Aymara language. They were kind of, um. Colonized, colonized by, by Kind of. I mean, there's a thing that happens where the Aymara were this proud, independent people. And then like in the 16th century, the Incas took them over. Yeah. And so. Suddenly, they're they have to be Incas. They're a they're a angry indigenous minority under the Incan Empire. Then the Spanish overthrow the Incas, and the Aymara think this is great. Hey, and they have board, an opening. They have borderline self government for a century or two, and then you know the Spanish uh, conquistador grasp kind of claws up to the Altiplano, and suddenly they have to be Catholic and Spaniard for a while. And there were there were a series of kind of exciting uh, uprisings. Uh, the, the Aymara. Um, led against the Spanish colonial government for centuries. I mean, Bolivia famously the I mean, named after the great liberator. Simon Bolivar himself. Yeah. Uh, but even after, you know, Bolivar brought independence to South America, and even in fact, even after the 52 revolution that was kind of the beginning of modern Brazil, there was still a really Brazil? strict... <laughs> I'm gonna, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> I, I think I almost said Brazilian once. The beginning of modern-day Bolivia in, in 1952, there was still a really strict class system yeah. whereby... You know, these, and a, a racial, ratio-class system. It's absolutely color-based. Um, the, the lighter, more mestizo-looking you are, the easier it is to get... Uh, Government jobs. Anything, an apartment. There were parts of... you know Because the indigenous people were mostly country folk, subsistence farming and fishing and whatnot, uh, they they were essentially absent from public life, city life, media life. You know, any high-profile neighborhood in La Paz, the capital, the world's highest altitude capital, mm-hmm. I think uh, often said there's almost no fire departments because there's not enough oxygen wow. for fires to start at, where is it? It's like 12,000 feet or something. I don't want to get this wrong because this is the kind of thing that people will know and yell at me about. Altitude of La Paz, yep, 12,000 feet. Uh, That's very high. It's 
oh, 2.5 times as high as Denver, which yeah. it, to American barometers seems pretty high. That's a mile high city right there, Denver, but it's a two and a half mile high city. You'd have to descend a mile and a half to get to Denver wow. if you were in La Paz. People like having state-of-the-art things, the newest thing. I bet a lot of our listeners have new phones, new games. I bet they do. I bet they have new um, new heads-up displays in their, in their new cars. They have VR, um, like nostril enhancers. But yet these people are probably all going to the bathroom the same way their grandmothers did. Digging a hole in the, in the yard out, That's right. out behind the barn? They go out to a, a little shack with a crescent moon carved into the door, and they rip pages off the Sears catalog, and they abrade their hindquarters with that. What does a modern person do when it's potty time, Ken? You use a Hello Tushy. How do you use a, a Hello it's, Tushy? It's an affordable, modern bidet attachment that oh, just attaches to okay. your toilet seat. It doesn't require its own source of water or electricity, so there's no wiring or plumbing you need to do. And it cuts your toilet paper use by 80% because it washes you gently. It sprays you, and then you dry, and you go. Is it handsome? Oh, it's it's beautiful. It's Are handsome and beautiful the same? I think they are in this context. I was like, is it handsome? And you said, oh, it's beautiful, and I knew exactly what you were saying. So Even if it were utilitarian, it would make you feel beautiful down there. I could use a little bit more feeling beautiful down there. Then what you want to do is go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus, and you will get 10% off your order of a Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment. Now, what if I already have, shipping. what if I have a Hello Tushy, but it's a few years old? Then you could upgrade to the new 3.0 model. Oh, really? Yes. It cleans, it not only cleans you, the 3.0 cleans itself with the Smart Spray automatic self-cleaning nozzle. What if I'm a little hesitant to go all in on a Hello Tushy and I kind of want to try it out? There's a 60-day risk-free guarantee. There's a 12-month warranty. Hello Tushy knows about your bidet hesitancy, mm-hmm, John, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're going to do what it takes to overcome that. People like me who are not sure they want to go all the way in on a bidet without trying it first. And that's smart. And who don't want to go to a hotel in Europe. When somebody's offering to spray your undercarriage with a liquid, yeah. you want to hedge a little bit. That's, like th- that see. makes you a smart, skeptical, modern consumer. Let me take it for a test drive. And to take that test drive... Here's a special offer for our listeners. Again, go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus for 10% off. You're saying you can get 10% off of a new Hello Tushy with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty by going to hellotushy.com slash omnibus? That's right. Hellotushy.com slash omnibus. The neighborhoods of La Paz where Bolivian life happens... Indigenous people almost totally absent, unless they're leaving their jobs as street hawkers or nannies or, you know, custodial staff. Yeah. You know, you you kind of see them, you see them coming and going at dawn and dusk to their lousy jobs, back to their little shanty towns on the outskirts. But otherwise, no representation in life. The center of town looks like the center of Buenos Aires. Yeah, I mean, the nice neighborhoods, you know, Plaza Maria or whatever, you know, the parts where power is actually concentrated in Bolivia, as late as the, you know, this 
century, as mm-hmm. late as the Morales era, um, these people were not welcome. But they did have a strong identity, and it's particularly the women where you see this because of their um, characteristic and very kind of photogenic uh, manner of dressing. The culture is called Chola culture, uh, which is, you know, the the fashion and the look is called Chola, which is where we get the diminutive Cholitas to describe the indigenous women of, uh, of Aymara culture. Chola also is used in the United States as yes. a, as the the feminine version of cholo. Yeah, chola means homegirl. Oh yeah. In in kind of Mexican American culture. Right. And I believe so I I could not nail down the etymology. It's sometimes said that chola in the kind of the barrio gang sense comes from Cholula, the town in Mexico, the city in Mexico. Oh. And that's actually not true. There's it's it's attested in non-Mexican parts of the continent before that. Because in the U.S., like like young cholas are, are known as cholitas. Yeah, and yeah. it's a fashion look here, too, you know, kind of the... Eyebrows. The high, uh, thin, drawn-on eyebrows, the super dark lip gloss, the crunchy, wavy hair in front. And, you know, now it's gotten to the point where everybody dresses like... You know, it's the new Riot girl look. You know, Lily Allen or whoever is just going to dress as a... Chola and hopefully get yelled at for it. Yeah, um, I, I am not. I have not adapted the the Cholita look. So well, you're wearing the the little um, you got you got your boxers under your little skirt. Yeah, your, that's your, true. Your baby blue shirt with your big jacket over it. You yeah. got your what's your point? You got your jewelry. Sure, you've I shaved, like these earrings. You've shaved your eyebrows and added. Well, yeah, the big hoop earrings look great. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I mean that's just my that's just my personal style. It's. But I think it's an etymological accident that the same word chola refers to oh. kind of that kind of uh, border U.S.-Mexico look from the chola look uh, as you see it in modern Bolivia. And that's like they wear the Homburg hat and the and the very colorful tapestries, pink colors. Let's get into it because you've, okay. you've probably seen the pictures of these oh, for sure. of these women in this surprising native garb, and it's a it's a mix of. Uh, you know, kind of what you'd expect to see from a cursory knowledge of South American indigenous people. It's got kind of voluminous skirts with, you know, multiple petticoats giving kind of a, a bustle look in the back. Right. And then like a knitted, colorful Very bright colors, shawl, primary colors. Yeah, super, super bright patterns. Um, but then the surprising addition of a bowler hat uh-huh. on top. The word chola is uh, universally used for this fashion and the subculture it may come from chula which is uh, latin american spanish for like hey good looking it's like hey guapa hey chula oh okay um but it also may straight up come from a racial slur hey good looking what you got cooking basically hey oh, hey chula like a racial slur that was uh that was co-opted and re uh, envisioned by the people yes uh the native the nahuatl word Sholatl with an X means like dog or mutt. Oh wait, so it's a racial slur from one indigenous people to another that was then co-opted and turned around. Well, my guess is, I mean, if it's Nahuatl, it's coming from up in Mexico Central American way. Oh, my guess is it got used. I mean, it literally means half breed, so it may have been used by either side of the of the class divide there to refer to. Um, you know, people in the middle, or or it may just have been a standard way to look down on indigenous people. So it's been reclaimed 
through Re- the, reappropriate through, yeah, through the process of, of reappropriation where, you know, a group takes the slur that's been used against them and kind of defangs it. Turns and, it into a, 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 a prideful term. Yeah. A way to wield power back over the, the oppressor. Um, but the, uh, but uh, any, but in any case, there's yeah. no real, uh, stigma to being called a chola now that's just kind of the universal name for not just the look but the whole indigenous uh population of that social strata now was it was it traditionally a matriarchal culture or is this an example of or is this a situation where because they were the most visible members of the community they became the iconic idea of it and it, it doesn't necessarily represent their role in the society in situ. The impression I get is that um, Bolivian society at all levels is very much the kind of macho South American thing you would expect. And this has actually been a surprising twist that the the women of this culture now have so much visibility. And it's largely owed to a historical accident. Um, In the 1920s, this is the most common, the most common version of this. Charlie Chaplin was in a plane crash. And yeah, they, they, all these women, all these children just love silent comedy so much. They were like, what's funny? A, a bowler hat that's a little too small. Uh, no, a shipment of, a shipment of bowler hats came in from Europe to Bolivia for uh, like railway workers. Oh my God, I love this story Like train so conductors right were supposed to wear them. But the hats were wrong. They're, you know, History was changed because something went wrong with the invoice. Yes. And there's two versions of the story. Either they were supposed to be black and they were brown, or the size was wrong and they were a little too small. But for whatever case, the in whatever case, the railway rejected them. All of a sudden, Suddenly, there's a warehouse full of two small bowler hats. Uh, possibly of the wrong color or the wrong size. <laughs> what are we going to do with these crates of nice European, and it's beaver uh, Sure, nice pelt. stuff. Uh, beaver pelt making its omnibus return. So they shot him out of a t-shirt cannon. Essentially, a local entrepreneur named Dominique Saligno. Oh, oh, a lady. uh, No, it's it's Dominique, like, I see. see. uh, Has the idea that you you could sell these to women if you um, glammed them up a little bit. Put a feather in them. Yeah, put a tassel or something on them. And, And all you have to do is... And, you know, he basically he's victimizing these people based on their status, you know, because he's going to say, hey, look at these European hats that you I can give you cheap. These are the hottest thing. Uh-huh. Uh, you're going to be a style icon. So he's he's exploiting their lack of sophistication. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, t- I, you know, and so they become a hit. And now uh, the absolute icon of Cholita culture is women wearing these little bowler hats kind of perched on their heads um there's a there, oh there's a hanky coat element where uh you can use the hat to, to show whether you're married or not yeah maritally available like a, a hat that's on straight is a married woman one that's kind of rakishly jauntily uh off oh, to the side like is, very that's very uh, real temptress there put the hat on the side yes, you're you're single and ready to mingle you know the hasidim do a, the similar thing like the different the hat really communicates the status of the man at least his marital status and his social status is that right do you keep a close eye on that i do you know i'm always looking for hanky codes wherever they wherever they they can be found a little hanky panky uh so it serves that it serves that purpose as well but uh, you know, as a result, you have this you know, much national geographic look of 
women in kind of Andean garb, you know, super kind of colorful, festive native dress all over, you know, the cities of the city and countryside of Bolivia now with these little tiny old timey men's hats. It's so funny. I really don't know exactly how to absorb it, uh, this information, because it, 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 it's only 100 years old, and yet and, and it's, it's, become a, it's become a symbol of kind of what you would call like America, America not American in the United States sense, but like the American continent, Pan-American, thank you, uh, Orientalism almost, like exotified but but they've also reappropriated it and made it well there's there's kind of this uncomfortable trope where you often see um indigenous people in colonized places sure, kind we're, of wearing a tuxedo yeah exactly and you're like you know and it's kind of like a, a laugh like haha look at this guy in the congo but he's um you know he's got a xylophone and a broken cuckoo clock and uh this elaborate uh hat from Savile Row you know and the idea is is you know it's supposed to be a little bit comical that you know the implication is that these people shouldn't have this nice stuff and don't know how to use it so yeah. it's it's a it's a racist trope right um I'll, whereas i use my broken cuckoo clock every day <laughs> sure uh, everyone should have a broken cuckoo <laughs> clock of all races colors and creeds <laughs> but so i but i think you kind of have to get past that in the case of the modern cholitas especially post morales when you know you started to see people dressed like this in government office i was looking at an interview with the uh, some Morales era Bolivian minister of justice. And she's wearing, it's not a, you know, she's wearing Chola gear. The hat is not quite, um, it's not a little Hamburg, but she's wearing kind of a weird, large brimmed floppy hat, a very kind of eccentric weave um, just to the office because it's now become accepted to see this kind of uh, stereotypically countrified, uh, garb in the public sphere and well, it's normalized it. What's cool when you look at the way that the hat has evolved, um, it really has evolved. You know, you see some that, that are very much just a bowler hat. That's two sizes too small, but then there are, you know, there are now, uh, ones in white. There are ones that are much closer to a top hat. There are ones that have evolved sort of, from uh, like a Panama hat style. I mean, it's become its own vernacular. Yeah, the new political clout and legitimacy that Morales' movement gave to the Aymara people has really made their fashion like an, a legitimate international fashion trend. Like runway collections have been inspired by the Chola look. Really? In, in New York and Paris and Milan. Um, and... You know, the hats, by the way, were origi- or often incorrectly called borsalinos, which was yeah. like the Italian manufacturer of the hat. That's right. that's not actually a name for that kind of hat. It's really, you know, that the hat is just called a usually just called a chola or something. Um and now they're now they're quite inexpensive and most of them are just kind of cheap Colombian imports. They don't really come from Italy or from Borsalino anymore. Uh but they have inspired legitimate uh, high fashion houses to um to borrow the look in the same way that Lily Allen wants to look like a like a homegirl. It's funny because, you know, the Aloha shirt uh, also has a similar history, like the Aloha shirt, which now is a symbol of Hawaiian independence. I mean, it's a shirt that you can wear. It's it's considered equivalent to a suit in Hawaii. You can wear it in government work. And, yeah. Um, it's, um, 
Or like the men wearing, you know, the Tongan or Samoan men wearing a kind of a, a wraparound skirt. Right. Uh, what do they call it? The That's not right. Sarong? A sarong? That's what right? I would call it. A serape? No, a sarong. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the Aloha shirt only dates to the 1920s. Huh. And is a shirt that is influenced by Japanese textiles and was originally made as a kind of way to use this leftover fabric to sell to tourists and GIs. And now it's become like, you know, and unfortunately in the last year was, became briefly, very briefly a symbol of a certain kind of boogaloo, uh, nut job, but we've reclaimed it now a third time. The Alo- we Aloha shirt collectors have reclaimed it again. There's more of you. There really are. Or, and at least you have, you have access to better media. Yeah, and you're, better, you're, you're not better shirts, in. too. I mean, their shirts were all f- off the rack you from Walmart. You have nice vintage shirts. Yes. It's funny that there's a pattern of, uh, what, uh, surplus stuff being sold to indigenous populations under the theory that they won't know any better and they'll just wear anything. And then, you know, the kind of authenticity that, or at least distinctiveness and authenticity that we associate with indigenous culture ends up making the look, uh, you know, so stylish that it becomes legitimate for anybody. Right. There, the final note of Cholita ascendancy. Well, now, wait a minute. Let me just ask about that. If you are an Italian fashion designer and are using Cholita style in your new, like, runway campaign, is that not double, triple cultural appropriation? Or, I mean, how do you take the bowler hat, take it to South America, turn it around, and then send it back to Italy, and then turn it around again? Where do we stand on that? I guess it, it seems to me like there's a cycle where, at first, the people are very flattered by the legitimacy that's offered by the by the borrowing of their culture, you right, know? Right, Like, uh, and then it, it's, only in, it's only once it becomes clear that there's a ton of money to be made by, <laughs> by having Pat Boone sing Chuck Berry songs or by putting Chola style hats on supermodels. Right. It's, it the, the, starts the, to the, feel exploitative. Then somebody starts to say, Hey, wait a second. Right now it seems like we're still in the phase of, um, you know, the, the, the Cholita women of La Paz feeling newly empowered by the fact that in a country that never had much time for women and never had much time for indigenous people, now they are the de facto symbol of the country on the world stage. Right. Um, but as soon I, I'm as sure, I'm sure the new, I'm sure the next phase is coming. <laughs> as soon as they are used on the, as a logo on a coffee can or, uh, or to sell oats, there's going to be a, a sense of like, now, 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 now. Do you feel like the Quakers rose up when they were used to sell oats? I certainly did. As a, as descendant of Quakers, I'm, I'm still upset about it. The final sign of uh, kind of Cholita ascendancy in uh, Bolivian culture is hilarious to me because it's totally unpredictable. I think you could never guess where this is going. I really am. I'm struggling now to guess. Every Sunday night in uh, El Alto, which is uh, kind of the big center of Aymara population, just west of La Paz, it's like the fastest growing city in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Is it I think. even higher than La Paz? It is higher than it's La Paz. Right there in the name. Hence the name. And I think it's like the Henderson, Nevada of. La Paz, it's kind of the growing, sprawling exurb. Right. Um, and it's the indigenous community, so it's not the most moneyed or old money part of town. Um, but every Sunday, El Alto has become a mecca for uh, Bolivian luchadores, professional wrestling. 
Okay. The kind of lucha libre culture that you might be familiar with in Mexico of the right. high flying acrobatics and the masked, uh, masked Avenger. over the top characters and the theatrical storylines. All this uh, is uh, has you know is, is growing through Latin America. And in Bolivia, I actually went to a wrestling match here up by up uh, on Aurora, North Seattle, at, at a like, lucha libre stuff. Yeah, there was a there was a whole. I mean, it, it was in a not a bar. It was in a bar basically, but it was a big, big kind of Western bar that had uh, a wrestling ring built inside of it instead of like a like a, a two step and dance floor. There was a wrestling ring, and then all these. Lucha Libre wrestlers came up from L.A. to stage an exhibition. The place was, it really felt like one of those scenes where you walk through a walk through a, a hidden door and all of a sudden you're in a smoke-filled room where people are, uh, I mean, I expected to see there uh, like a, a game of Russian roulette happening in the center, but it was this crazy wrestling and I was thrilled by it. It it's, was bananas. I've been to one of those in Seattle as well, but I came down toward you. Like oh. the one I went to was in a park on the Duwamish. I can't remember the name of that. Outdoors. Yeah, they had set up. They had like this. They had set up a, a ring in the park, and I, from what I remember, it was kind of an event to try to raise awareness. And maybe the the event you saw was the same way. No, my, the event I saw was all about gambling and it was just dogfighting. Yeah, this was a an attempt to change the. I don't know if it's Washington or Seattle municipal law that's been keeping Lucha Libre style wrestling from happening. Apparently, uh, however, our, our, uh, our um, event licensing laws are written are not super Lucha door friendly. <laughs> and we don't have a lot of crazy masked guys, you know, getting in the city council's face. If I was still uh, interested in being in Seattle politics, I might take this up, but as it is, I'm going to, I'm going to sit it out. That's a, it's a can't lose campaign issue. I'm going to make Seattle a Lucha Libre capital. <laughs> so here we are in El Alto. El Alto. And the, you know, Alto. for a dollar, you can go see your favorite Bolivian wrestlers fight. And the most popular wrestlers, both locally and it's become a stop on the tourist trail. So increasingly internationally are the fighting Cholitas. They're, wow. Wait it, a minute. Really? Yeah. Women wrestlers who dress up in all the garb. They've got the... You know, the big skirts, the montage, the knitted shawl, the crocheted shawl, the elaborately plated hair. Um, they take off the bowler before they get into the ring. But they are uh, wrestling sometimes each other because there's, you know, heels and faces and, and storylines. But uh, more often they're just wrestling against men. And they've created a whole new set of fandoms for this growing wrestling scene. Um and, you know, at first they were criticized, like, this is not the role of women in Bolivian culture to be elbow dropping a dude in a mask. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's the kind of, it's the kind of argument that you or I or Billy Graham might make. Sure. Um, but their swelling popularity with women, with families, with tourists, with um, city folks have made them kind of the breakout stars of this local scene. So like trading cards and and their faces on billboards. Type yeah, of thing? they you know they only make like I think they make like thirteen bucks a match. Or, you know they all have day jobs, but they sell their own merch. There's um, you know they they've been featured in the Western media a lot, and there was even a documentary about them at Sundance uh, a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah. The you know words getting out about this unusual sports scene, and you know so in a place where 
you know, women are often supposed to be shy and retiring. They've really kind of inspired a generation of girls uh-huh. to, uh, you know, kind of take to charge. Pick and, up the bass guitar and... <laughs> and he, Exactly. And it's at yeah. the same time as Morales is, you know, more women are running for parliament and local mayoral elections and, and all the rest. So it's been kind of a change to the culture from all sides. And it's become a symbol of Bolivia from outside as well, because it's insanely marketable. These uh, traditional looking Andean woman, women just... Um, doing leg drops on like, on unsuspecting luchadores. Are they wearing masks or do they do that thing where they pull the hat down over their eyes and cut little <laughs> eye holes in it? Like Mushmouth? Like never, that would be a great costume. So Mushmouth, I think, is the only example of that. You and I are like, oh yeah, that thing. But like, does anyone do that except for Mushmouth? <laughs> you just get a big hat and cut the eye holes? That seems that seems like a great costume. So are they? The is way- their costume actually... Just their streetwear and they're wrestling against Lucha Libre. Yeah, they don't they don't have the mask because they're they're kind of the glamorous figures. You know, they're you know, they're the they're the they're the fighting cholitas. They're the pretty ladies of the ring. Right. Um the men are these kind of mystery figures, mostly threatening. You know, I think they're mostly heels when they fight the women. Yeah. Uh in masks. But uh but the women are like celebrities, you know, like everybody knows uh the La Maldita or 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 whoever. I can't wait for there to be like a globally famous villain Cholita wrestler who's like just like the super bad, super bad. In the U.S., I think wrestling gimmicks always follow uh, trends in popular culture, you know, but right. uh, it really does make me think that would be a way to r- bring about social change in any society is, you know, why isn't, you know, Greta Thunberg doing suplexes off the top rope? And that concludes Cholitas, entry 218.1C1110, certificate number 16179 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, you can communicate with us, Ken and myself, through a time portal at Omnibus Project across all social media. Uh, you can email us directly at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can write to us or send us packages at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I have a couple packages here. What do you got there? Michael in Edmonton. Well, that's in Canada. Very good, wow. John. Yeah, I o- mean, oil sands town. I mean, speaking of taking over the Western Hemisphere just because we were on top, shouldn't Canada actually have its own Monroe Doctrine? Hmm. I mean, they're they're really at the top of the Western Hemisphere food chain. They feel, they tell us what to do. Yeah, I feel and we like, take it out on Mexico and Guatemala. What is the Canadian Monroe Doctrine? Um, send all your good rock guitarists and movie stars to the United States. Send all your good uh, <laughs> sketch comics to Chicago. Uh, well, you know, I've been to Edmonton and it is, uh, it's a surprisingly big town. Better it, than Calgary? What do you think? It, well, we're gonna diff- make, very different. We're going to make somebody mad. Uh, Edmonton feels like if you took Anchorage, Alaska and made it three times as big, <laughs> but didn't change any other thing about it. Oh does, no. And put a big river down the middle. Of does it have three times as many people? It does. It's enormous. Or is it just three times as big an area? It's enormous, but it doesn't read as a big city. You get there and you're like, oh, it's just some border town out in the wastes. And then you're like, wait a minute, this town goes on and on. 
I had a great time there, actually. I can't remember what this is in reference to. Uh, Michael sent us a box of Nielsen Jersey milk, which must be chocolate bar, beloved Albertan chocolate, with a post-it that says "Better than Hershey's." Yeah, we're always, or at least I'm sorry, I'm always. We're putting down American chocolate on this program, aren't we? Or well, I am. You are, and I will defend Hershey's to my dying day. And there are a lot of people in Europe and Canada and elsewhere who uh, who take the bait. And want to fight me, and want to say that they're weird, like buttery, unlikable chocolate is better than our nice waxy solid. It's one half paraffin by weight. Junk chocolate, and I'll fight them to the I'll, I'll fight them to the end of the earth, just as I will fight anyone from New York who says that Chicago style pizza is not a better pizza. Well, I can't tell. Oh, it's it's actually a ton of candy bars. Please pass them along. Would you what? like to try a, a an Albertan chocolate bar? I certainly would. It's a it's a chocolat au lait here. It's got the bilingual packaging you would expect from our Canadian friends. It actually does not appear to be Albertan. It's oh wait, this chocolate it's from has, Ontario. This chocolate has been sitting in a warehouse or something. It's got a little bit of that um, the powder. Well, yeah, where the the, the that, that's milk actually, solids kind of that, go to the surface. That's actually Coke and baby laxative. Hmm. Hmm. It's milky milk chocolate. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Better than a Hershey bar? It's good. Does it have a little bit of cinnamon in it or cardamom or something? Isn't there a little bit of a spice? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Take a look at the, ins- the directions here. Natural flavor. It's got soy lecithin. Oh, maybe you're just tasting flavor. the lecithin. Wait. It has tree nuts. That's what I'm tasting. Tree nuts. They're just warning you because of allergies. (laughs) We also got this mystifying thing to the P.O. box. At first, I was like, this is the most omnibus thing ever. It's, um... Surveillance photos taken from a a drone? Kind of, except they're from 1928. Oh, is that St. Louis? Very good. How did you know? Well, I know St. Louis. It says south from the Eads Bridge. Am I saying that right? And I had just read a book set in St. Louis, which had the Eads Bridge in it. So I knew what I was looking at. Are here. those actual photos or are those photo stats? They are hand tinted uh, prints of some kind. Oh, look at those. But here's the crazy oh, thing. Oh, I love and, that. And, and remember, we had just done a show about the St. Louis waterfront right? not too long ago about right? the Gateway Arch. But here's the thing. This was not addressed to us. What? It was addressed to Will, uh, one Will Bramlett oh, at, at our P.O. Box. Five five seven four four. Wait a minute. Did he address? Is it is it from Will Bramlett? And he doesn't know how uh, envelopes work. <laughs> no, it's from somebody named Lehrer, and there's no explanatory note of any kind. So I think we got Will. I mean, I've, I've had this P.O. Box for five years. I don't know when Will Bramlett could have had it, but we accidentally got Will's mail, and it actually turned out to be. Super apropos. Incredibly omnibusy. So thank you, um, person who is almost certainly not listening, Mr. Lehrer. Um, yeah. What what can we say about this? I mean, that this is very St. Louis. I mean, these this is not an original photograph, but no, it's a. But the hand tinting is nice. I think what I didn't know is that St. Louis, like Seattle, had a an elevated railroad that went along the entirety of the waterfront. Really? Which is why the waterfront in St. Louis is weirdly, um, it kind of feels like it has its back turned to the river, which has always confused me. Because nobody wanted to face the tracks. Yeah, but there was a railroad right in between the city and the and the river. So, huh. 
Now you know. These are 24 candy bars. Thank we- you, candy bar friend. Thank you, Michael. Um, so are we going to split those, or is this one of those things where you walk out of here with all the candy bars and give me a $5 bill, or what? <laughs> how is this going to play? Um, usually, if there's something we both want, we just split it. Yeah. And the candy bars are easy to split, unlike, say... A $5 bill. Or a painting of Luke Skywalker in an X-Wing fighter. Oh, yeah. That was... Did you want that? No. Because I gave it to my daughter for her birthday. I think it was maybe addressed to you. And she thinks that I'm the best dad ever. She got a ton of birthday presents that were actually just omnibus mail. (laughs) Um, You can find omnibus fan communities on all the places that you might seek a fan community. Uh, We are on... uh, We have groups. Rather, we're not really... Uh, the proprietors, but there are groups on Facebook and Discord and Reddit and uh, wherever fine jewelry is sold under the Futurelings heading. He went to Jared. And you can support our show. Uh, your generous donation not only helps us make the program and and keep, um, keep trucking along, but also... Uh, there are many wonderful advantages to supporting the show with your financial contribution. Ken, why don't you what go down? What are some of those? Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask you, what are some of the, the benefits of of joining the program? I mean, if we're doing a pledge drive, I would say my favorite is the bonus addenda show mm-hmm. that comes out at the end of each month. Uh, that's only for our Patreon donors where we uh, add forgotten and mistaken, correct mistaken information from past shows based on listener feedback. Yeah, when people write in and say, you know, Edmonton is actually the largest chocolate-producing city in Canada. We'll talk about that on the Addenda show. We pretend to care about all those, all Mm -hmm. that feedback. I think that I got into a little bit of an argument with the mid-century housing fans of Vancouver, Canada. The (laughs) MCHFOVC? Who really, really, really want me to accept... That those Vancouver... Um, oh, yeah. What do they call those? The happy houses or whatever. That these that these mid-century mass-produced homes are actually a beloved Vancouver institution. And on the Addenda show, I pushed back and made some argument that they, that I, uh, that I was refusing to accept their argument. And later on, I realized I, A, had no dog in that race, and B, maybe didn't know what I was talking about. So anyway, on behalf of... On behalf of everyone here at Omnibus HQ, if the people of Vancouver want um, to want to have those houses be beloved instead of reviled, uh, I won't stand in your way. What is modern culture if not yelling about something you don't know exactly. or care about? Exactly. I'm yelling over the border at a kind of house, which is so, that's so 2020 me, but it's really not 2021 me. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long this civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we so fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, though, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. And at least you'll know about uh, current events in Bolivia. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>